All right, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 13, the final chapter of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 13. And if you are, were here last week, really the previous two weeks, uh, you might wonder what else is there to add to the story that hasn't already happened in chapter 12. Essentially, chapter 12 was the, uh, and they lived happily ever after, ending to the book. The enemies are thwarted. Hooray! The walls are rebuilt. Yippee! The city is filled with people. Huzzah! And right as everyone is marching around the city, and they're dancing, and they're rejoicing, and they're getting ready to live happily ever after... Chapter 13 comes in and says, ah, 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 the story is not over yet. Not so fast. Imagine for a moment if in a fairy tale, after the prince slayed the dragon and saved the damsel, and just as they were getting ready to ride off in their carriage to live happily ever after, imagine at that very moment the dragon resurrected back to life, burned down the castle, ate the damsel, and sent the prince running off with his rump on fire. That is Nehemiah chapter 13 in a nutshell. Nehemiah 13 is why we can't have nice things in the Old Testament. Because this sort of thing happens over and over and over again. And as painful as this chapter is going to be, for Nehemiah, and as painful as it is going to be for us to watch poor Nehemiah as he is so frustrated in the end, after he's tried his hardest to make things work, it, it's just one more reminder for us why things never seem to go right in the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. You see, if Nehemiah ended in chapter 12, there would be no need to look for a Savior. There would be no need for Jesus. They rebuilt the city. They filled it with people. They promised to obey God. And they did obey God forever and ever. And they didn't have a king because they didn't need one. And they didn't need a Savior because they never sinned again. And they didn't need a new covenant because... The Old Covenant was good enough to keep the city of God perfect and everyone lived happily ever after. No, no, no. Because for every Nehemiah chapter 12 in the Old Testament, there has to be a chapter 13 to show us that we need a new covenant. We need Jesus Christ because fundamentally we are promise breakers in need of a promise-keeping Savior. See, promising to keep the law of Moses more fervently this time doesn't make us any more able to actually keep our promise. And that's what they've done. Nehemiah rebuilds the city. The people promise this time, this time, we're going to keep the promises. We're, gonna, we're not going to break the law. We're going to keep our promises 
And in fact, what ends up happening is the more specifically and fervently we as the people of God promise to keep the covenant, it just makes it more obvious when we fail. Look back at Nehemiah chapter 10 for a minute. Just flip back the page. Chapter 10, three specific promises the people make as they are recommitting themselves to the law. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 30. Promise number one. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Promise number one. Promise number two, verse 31. And if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Promise number three, verse 32. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. We will take care of the house of God. Promise number three. Guess which three promises the people of God systematically break one after another in Nehemiah chapter 13? These. All of these promises that they specifically said we won't do these things. Promise number three, we will keep the house of God and its service broken. Promise number two, we will, not, uh, we will keep the Sabbath holy broken. Promise number one, we won't intermarry with the peoples of the land broken. So, if you've been with us for uh, this series through the book of Nehemiah, this chapter is going to be so frustrating for you. It was for me uh, this week. So, with that chipper introduction, why don't we stand as we honor the reading of God's Word in Nehemiah chapter 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by command to the Levite singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king, and came to Jerusalem, and then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled, each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations, and then all Judah brought the tithe and the grain and wine and oil and into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, 
Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zachor, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain, and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I'll lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come in on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I made them take oaths in the name of God, saying, You shall not give the daughters to your, their, your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women among the many nations that there was no king like him and he was beloved by his God and God made him king over all Israel? Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Hornite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. <sighs> Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Nehemiah 13 and how it shows us our need not for more Nehemiahs, but for a man, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I was reading this chapter, the end of this book, in my study this week, and just squirming in my seat as each of these episodes unfolded, and you just want to go, What? Why? What are you doing? Ah, no. 
I literally, Mindy can attest to this, in the, in the margins of my page, in just capital scribbles, I have the word N-O, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. No! And you can just feel Nehemiah's exasperation just oozing from the page. And he just finishes, remember me, oh God, for my good. The end. He tells us in verse 6, he went away for a while. If you remember, all the way back in chapter 1, Nehemiah is not actually a citizen of Jerusalem. He's actually a, a, a member of the king's court. And so work calls him back. If you remember back in chapter 2, he promised he'd be back at a certain time. So he has to go back. And he leaves the city in good hands and everything's in order. The wall is built. The people are growing and they're prosperous. And the priests are all stationed and the singers and the services and everything's perfect. But when Nehemiah comes back after just a short stint away, it's kind of like uh, how I feel every afternoon when I come back to my house. I open the door, and you can't get the door open because the kids have dumped all of the board games out on the floor in front of the front door. And then you walk past the playroom where someone has taken a marker and, and just drawn on the walls. And then you walk down the hallway, and, and you pass the nursery, and someone... Caroline has taken all the wipes out of the box and thrown them and festooned her nursery with them. And then you go to the back room and and you know it's just going to be covered in Legos. And it is. And then I go back into the master bedroom and shut the door to our bathroom and I just fall on the ground and I say, Remember me, O God, for my good. That's the way Nehemiah feels. No matter where he turns, he's been away for a short while. The children of Israel have found a way to destroy the city he has worked so hard to rebuild. And behind every door is another broken promise. And if you felt it this morning, chapter 13 breaks down into kind of 13 mini, uh, into three mini episodes where they break each of those three specific promises that they made back in chapter 10. And each of these episodes begins with the phrase, on that day or in those days. You see it in verse 1, on that day. And then again in verse 15, in those days. And then finally the third episode, verse 23. In those days. And each of the episodes plays out in the same fashion. First we see how the people have broken their promise. And Nehemiah confronts them about it. And then Nehemiah does everything he can to try to get everything set back straight. He's trying to fix it. And then the episode finishes with Nehemiah exasperated and simply praying to the Lord. Remember me. Remember how hard I've tried. And so, we have this cycle. Broken promise, Nehemiah fixes it, Nehemiah prays. Broken promise, Nehemiah fixes it, Nehemiah prays. Broken promise, Nehemiah tries his best to fix it, and then Nehemiah prays. So let's look at episode one. So Nehemiah has just spent 12 years 
Not a vacation day. Not a weekend off. Not a sick day. Setting everything in order in this city. And he takes one quick work trip. He gets called away. And when he returns home to Jerusalem, he expects to find everything humming along, just like it was when he left. The priests are doing their thing. The people are doing their thing. They're keeping the Sabbath. The the walls are being protected. The house of God is being kept holy. All these things. But when he comes home, and he throws open the door of the temple, there, taking a bubble bath in the middle of the courtyard of the household of God, is none other than the arch enemy of the people of God, Tobiah himself. Promise broken. The people have not kept the house of God. The story tells us in verse 1, On that day they read from the book of Moses in hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they didn't meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us whether this was something new or something they should have been doing all along, but the idea is here they are, they're gathered week after week, and they get together, they hear the word of the law. Oh, there's a command. We can't have any Ammonites or Moabites in the congregation of God's people, and so they separate them out. The real focus this, in this episode, though, is not about this technical command, but it's, it, it opens a door to this huge, colossal, broken promise. Because not only have Ammonites and Moabites infiltrated the congregation of the Lord, they have taken up residence in Ground Zero itself. There is the most notorious Ammonite in those days has taken up residence in the house of God. The one house in all the world set apart for the Lord. The one house of God in all of creation has become the penthouse of an Ammonite. And not just any Ammonite. The Ammonite, Tobiah. The enemy of God. The one who's been doing everything this whole story to try to prevent the rebuilding of the walls. And he's been uh, speaking evil and sending threats and doing whatever he can to prevent the rebuilding of this city. And now here he is. They've made a nice little... uh, condominium there for him in one of the chambers of the house of God. The people promised to keep the house of God and its service and you know what? It's not even God's house anymore. Verse 8, Nehemiah says, I was very angry and I threw all the furniture of the house of Tobiah out of the house of God. And I gave orders that they cleanse the chambers and I brought back all of the stuff that was belonging to the house of God. And then he goes on to discover, not only has Tobiah moved in, but since he's moved in, there's no longer any more tithes or offerings coming in, so there's nothing to provide for the Levites and the singers, and so they've all had to flee to their own homes. And so for weeks, there's been no service, there's been no offerings made to the Lord, Verse 11, so I confronted the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? God, 
Guys, promise broken. So Nehemiah sets everything straight again and he stations the Levites and the singers and he makes sure all the people bring the offerings and he makes sure the services get started up and he appoints new treasurers who are going to make sure that everything is apportioned properly in the storehouses of God. And then Nehemiah prays. Here is prayer in verse 14. Remember me, O my God, concerning this and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God. And for his service. Lord. You know I try. I have tried my hardest. To force these people. To keep. Their promise. Concerning your house. And it's service. There's many things we could take away. From this first mini episode. One of which is. Don't let the enemies of God. Live in the house of God. For starters. Maybe. You know. Don't let people who have erected themselves as an enemy of God to come and then live in the house of God. Probably not a good idea. But I think there's something more fundamental here. You know, we read this story and we stand in the shoes of Nehemiah and we say, what is wrong with these people? Isn't that how you feel? What on earth is wrong with these people? Well, fundamentally, what is wrong is that these people do not want to obey. They do not want to obey. Every law you give them, even the simplest of commands, they will find a way to disobey it with style and flair. I mean, this, this, this simple command, no Ammonites or Moabites in the congregation of the people. How much more could you disobey it than to station and give a penthouse to the Ammonite, Tobiah, in the house of God? You see, the law is great at telling the people how to obey. And Nehemiah keeps telling them how to obey over and over and over again. But the law of God has no ability to make the people want to obey God. And I wonder how many preachers get up on Sunday morning and feel like Nehemiah. And they get all red-faced and exasperated and worn out from telling the people how to obey God over and over and over again. How to obey. Cleaning out the house of God. Setting things straight again. Fixing, repurifying, restationing. Have we ever stopped to ask? Maybe the problem is not that the people don't know how to obey. It might be they just don't want to obey. And that's a problem that Nehemiah and all the rest of the Old Testament shows us that the law is unable to fix. The law of Moses cannot make us want to obey. And we need a man to come who's not going to be another Nehemiah, who's simply going to come and tell us how to obey again and again. And set things right and say, here's how you obey. And set things right, here's how you obey. Set things right We need a man who can come and give us a heart 
that actually wants to obey the Lord. That's what we need. You see, friends, this morning, what we need is not a new law. We don't need a new set of rules. We don't need to be retold the rules over and over again until we feel so guilty that we obey. What you and I need is a new heart that actually wants to obey. Well, the next mini-episode finds the people breaking their second big promise. We will keep the Sabbath holy. Oh, we ought to know better than that. We will. We swear. We'll even stamp our names on the covenant. We're going to do it. Chapter 10, they promised, and I quote, If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. Now look at verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and all kinds of wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Even foreigners, Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Guys! Nehemiah says, hello, promise, broken. And he says, isn't this the very reason that God destroyed this city in the first place? Look at verse 18. Did not your fathers act in this way? Didn't they break the Sabbath? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Are you going to bring more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? Do you just want God to burn the city down again after all of our hard work? This is the very reason the temple was burned down, the walls were thrown down, the people were taken into exile in Babylon for 70 years. Nehemiah says, because our fathers did this very thing, profaning the Sabbath. In fact, if you were to read 2 Chronicles 36, specifically says the people were in Babylon for 70 years, one for every Sabbath year that the people didn't keep over the 400 years they were in the Promised Land. That's why. And here they are, breaking their second promise, not keeping the Sabbath day holy. So, of course, Nehemiah knows the answer. We'll just lock the doors. That'll force them to keep the Sabbath. And so he locks all the merchants out. He locks it in the evening before the Sabbath. And all the merchants stay outside the gate. And he says, if you come back here, I'm going to lay hands on you. And so they all leave. If the people aren't going to keep the Sabbath, I'll force them to. Come on, guys. How hard is it? Just keep the Sabbath holy. Once again, we find Nehemiah exhausted in his prayer closet, praying, Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Once more, we are confronted with the question, What is wrong with these people? Well, these people fail to believe Think all the way back. Just think back to the very beginning when the people met this Lord. What kind of people were they in Egypt? Slaves, right? 
400 years of slavery in Egypt. And God rescues them and He brings them out. Now, do slaves get a day off? Do slaves get rest? No. Slaves have to tread wine presses every day of the week. Slaves have to carry heavy burdens Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Slaves work and work and work and work and then they die. That's what slaves do. So the Lord rescues this slave people out of slavery and the capstone commandment that he gives them is this. I am a Lord who has rescued you out of slavery. You will have rest because I am the Lord of the Sabbath. My people are not slaves. They will have a day of rest because I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And again, the problem here is that Nehemiah uses the law to tell the people what to believe. You're not slaves anymore. Jerusalem is a city of free men and women. You don't have to carry these burdens on the Sabbath. The Lord is the Lord of the Sabbath. But they want to be like all the other nations. He may tell them over and over again what to believe, but they do not want to believe. They want to be like the other nations who work every day. Who carry heavy burdens every day of the week. They know what to believe. Yeah, 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 the Sabbath. But they don't want to believe. They don't want to believe that they are no longer slaves, but children of God. And again, I wonder how many churches today are filled with people who know what to believe. Don't want to believe it. The problem is they want to be like the rest of the world who are slaves. And God keeps offering them rest and freedom and peace. But they don't want that. And here's poor Nehemiah trying his best to use the law to force the people to do something they don't want to do. Believe that they are God's children. Again, we need a man who can go deeper than telling us simply what to believe, but who can change our hearts and give us a want to believe. Our final mini-episode and the conclusion, sad conclusion of Nehemiah begins in verse 23. Let's look at it together. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their kids spoke the language of Ashdod, and they couldn't even speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Promise, capital B, capital R, capital O, capital K, capital E, capital N. This time, Nehemiah quotes back to them the exact promise that they made. This is why we don't have a king, guys. Don't you remember Solomon? Best king in all the land. Most blessed king ever. But then he married a bunch of women. 
from foreign nations and ruined everything. Guys, is that what you want? And we see Nehemiah, and he's rampaging through the city, and his hair is all disheveled, and he's cursing, and he's swearing, and he's beating people up, and he's pulling their hair out. And he discovers, in all of this madness, to his dismay, that even the son of the high priest, the next in line to be the high priest in the house of God, has become the son-in-law of none other than Sanballat the Hornite. The ringleader of the enemies of God himself. And Nehemiah says, no, no, get, you just get out of here. Get out of here. <laughs> he says, I chased him out. And you can just picture Nehemiah. He's got spittle running down his beard. And his hair is all crazy. And his eyes are glazed over. And he's running around the city. And he cannot figure out what to do. He cleanses the people of all, everything foreign and he reestablishes the priests and the Levites. And as he collapses in the final verse of the book, all he can manage to pray is this. Remember me, oh God, for my good. What is wrong with these people? They know how to be pure. They know how to stay separate from the nations. It's not that they don't know how. It's that they don't want to be pure. They marry foreign women and in just one generation's time, now the children walking the streets of Jerusalem don't even know how to pronounce the name of the Lord, let alone to understand His word. How do you keep a people pure who don't want to be pure? who don't want to obey, who don't want to believe. This is the state of the house of God. This is the state of the city of Jerusalem. This is the state of the people at the end of Nehemiah. As we reflect back on the story, you know, chapters 1 through 12, I think we can say Nehemiah did a pretty flawless job. Don't you think? I mean, we've looked at him. He's been a superb example of doing everything according to the book. And in chapter 12, everything was exactly as it was supposed to be. But here's the problem. The law. You see, the law has blessings for obedience, but then it has this other thing, curses for disobedience. And we got a glimpse of what Jerusalem could be. If the people would only be, diso- would be obedient, this is what Jerusalem would be forever and ever. Amen. Rejoicing with great joy and prosperity. But the problem is the curse for disobedience. You see, as sinful human beings, we have a way of turning God's blessing into a curse with absolute fashion and flair. We know how to take all the best things God gives us and use them to destroy everything. We not only break the law, but we break it with skill. Man, we make Tobiah a penthouse in the house of the Lord. That's how bad we know how to break it. 
The book of Nehemiah shows us that apart from God, we are a people who turn every blessing into a curse. Every single one. So it doesn't matter how many times you burn down the city of Jerusalem and send a Nehemiah to rebuild it. You could do it a thousand times. And we would still find a way to turn that blessed city into a curse. It doesn't matter how many times you send the people into exile and bring them back. It only takes a moment for us to earn God's wrath forever once more. Nehemiah shows us that what we need is not more law. Because under the law, we just keep earning the curse over and over again. Under the law, we turn blessing into a curse. What we need is a Nehemiah 13, verse 2 kind of God. A God who turns a curse into a blessing. The God who turns a curse into a blessing. And that, brothers and sisters, is what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to do. He came to a Jerusalem filled with people who did not want to obey, who did not want to believe, who had no interest in being pure, and He died on a cross and became a curse for them. So that on the third day, He could be raised and give us the blessing that changes everything. His spirit. That is what is lacking in Nehemiah. Because the law from the outside is trying, trying, trying to convince hearts of stone to do what hearts of stone don't want to do. But then a man comes, Jesus Christ, and he becomes a curse for us on the cross. And then he bestows upon us this blessing, his spirit, who changes our hearts so that now we do want to obey. Who changes our hearts so that now we do want to believe. Who changes our hearts so that now we do want to be pure. God did answer Nehemiah's final prayer in chapter 13. Remember me, O God, for my good. Because you see, the best thing God could do for his people is not to send another Nehemiah and then another Nehemiah and then another Nehemiah, but to send his son, Jesus Christ, the God who changes the curse on the cross into the blessing of his spirit. And that makes all the difference forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are not afraid what you will find in your house when you return. Because you have put your spirit among us, you will not find the enemy among us. Because we now want to obey. We want to believe. We want to be pure. We want to keep your word. We want to follow you. We want you to be pleased when you come back for us. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray, help us to avoid all the pitfalls of Nehemiah 13. And we know that we will because you have given us your spirit who makes all the difference. God, we thank you that we no longer live in the frustrating reality under your law, but now you have put your spirit which changes us from the inside out. May that be true 
And may it be evident among your people, week after week, as you make us a people who obey, a people who believe, and a people who are set apart for your holy purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.